Ta is powered by the Seneca Network. We are a new bi-weekly podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. A quick shout out to the entire team at SubChina, especially Kaiser Kuo, editor and co-producer, as well as Jason McRonald for editing. I visited Libby Lam, mother and professional children's book author and illustrator at her alma mater, Savannah College of Art and Design in Hong Kong. She took the time to share her dramatic career switch and more about her philosophy as an author and illustrator. We learned how her time as a corporate executive at PepsiCo and Walt Disney Company influenced her, why she decided to write in English instead of Chinese, and how she adjusted to going back to school. Let's take a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ta for Ta. We are so excited to have Libby Lam, writer and illustrator, on the show today. And I actually think it would be best if you just told listeners a little bit more about yourself and who you are. Okay, thank you very much, Juliana. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me to your big show. Um, a little bit about myself. I was born in the 1970s in Hong Kong in a you know poor district in Hong Kong called Wong Tai Sin. I actually grew up in those seven-story temporary settlement estate there where those estates were built to house the influx of immigrants from, you know, actually refugees from China after the Second World War and at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. Among those refugees are my uh, grandparents. So I was their third generation and we're still stuck in those temporary estates in its 1970s. So very early on, in my life, I well understood that I was expected to be the one to help them, you know, get out from poverty. But it was, um, you know, during those times, we don't have any private bathroom or kitchen in our tiny cubicle. Every daily chores that we do, we have to go to the public areas. And I remember I used to make friends with the rats and mice <laughs> that my grand- grandma caged in the house. And you can see the hygienic situation, how bad they are. But we kind of grew up and we, are happy. we were happy. You know, not until that I was uh, eight years old that I was given a children's book for the first time that I can call my own. Before that is all uh, hand-me-downs from my neighbors. And it was such a fascinating and mind-blowing experience with that book. It's called Hey Diddle Diddle. Barely understanding any English at that time. I literally spent like my days just reading the illustrations. And I was, you know, it made me daydream about almost everything. That book held a special place in my heart. It inspired me to learn English because I wanted to understand the books. And also it inspired me to draw but very soon, textbooks have replaced children's books. That's my daily reading because I know I was expected to do well in school and then get a good job, you know, get into a good university and then get a good job and then earn money. So I haven't really spent much time reading children's books after, you know, secondary school. So I earned good grades, got into top universities. And when I was um, at the age of 17, I was given an offer by a reputable design school in Hong Kong. I was aspiring to be a designer, but my parents wanted me to turn down the offer because they never would 
expect a designer would bring home any decent income. So, and I was the eldest in the family. So that's why I have to give it up and took the mainstream, got into the top university and, you know, finished the bachelor and then two masters and, you know, got into consultancy and then got into the corporate world. So during those years, when I got into university and also the 12 years in corporate, I put down my pen and, you know, doing what I'm supposed to do to earn money. Um, 100% of my goal is purely mercenary. Um, I do the job, not because I like it, just because it gave me the income, it gave me the status, it gave me wings to fly from poverty. So it was not until that I had my first baby that I started to wonder how I can make her happy. And I understand that if she can do what she loves to do for her entire life, that is guarantee her lifelong happiness. And that was the moment when I was I realized that Oh, how about I reassessing my life? Am I pursuing my passion? And the answer is no. So the job that I've been doing that give me good money and status is actually a learned behavior that I acquire in order to please the world to, you know, get respects and also get the money. But I don't think that I can carry on in this kind of mode for my entire life because if I've never pursue my own passion? How can I inspire my children to pursue theirs? So I have to do it myself first. And that's why that was the first idea that I wanted to do something different. That is so well articulated. And I'm seeing how this is coming together. I think I want to understand a little bit more about your time in the corporate world. What do you think you learned there? I know you said it was primarily transactional and utilitarian, But do you think there are any glimmers of insight from your time there? So um, I spent like 12 years working in corporates for like three, four corporations. And like two of those are Fortune 500 companies, multinational big businesses. I think the biggest takeaway from those corporate days is I become more self-aware of my own strengths and areas for improvements. And those self-awareness that I've learned about myself are very useful in my new job as a children's book artist. For example, I developed very good skills in project management, and it requires time management as well. And this is like 100% I was using it in managing my own book project. And not just that, but also as a mom who needs to juggle a lot of different roles and different challenges and fight fire every day. And project management is key. And also, I know that I thrive under deadlines. And I need a structured environment to work. I used to schedule my work in a very structured way. But at the same time, I enjoy chaos. And this is what I learned from, you know, working for big companies because they sometimes they change priorities without letting you know. And you have your teammates changed or people get fired and you're left alone and nobody cares about what you do. But all of a sudden, what you're doing become the top agenda. You have all this changing happen. And coping with chaos actually trained me up as a good mom. (laughs) as the children are the source of the chaos. And I I kind of enjoying this and I kind of develop a lifestyle that make my own structured work routine, but at the same time, leave a chunk of time, just deal with something new that came up on the day. And, you know, when we were working on books, you have a lot of, you know, unexpected things coming up, not just on the 
on managing my writing and illustrating. But when it comes to publishing and distributing the books, still a lot of things come up that is unexpected. And I think that skills in managing chaos, how I enjoy coping with chaos and how it squeezes my creativity, that is something that I learned from my corporate job that I found very useful. It's interesting to see how you're linking your corporate job to your career now. But you might not have known that before you decided to make this transition. So you were deep into this professional world, yes. knowing it wasn't your passion. But it takes a lot of bravery, I would assume, to say, I'm going to change. Mm-hmm. I'm going to change what I'm doing. I'm going to change status quo. What were those first conversations like with your family members and your friends? How do they respond? How do you react? It's one of the hardest decisions that I have to make. Uh, about resigning from the corporate world and take up something really radical is to pursue a creative industry, you know, a career, and also to be a children's book artist, which is so offbeat in the publishing world and, you know, in the children education kind of industry as well. So there had been a lot of self-talk that happening at the beginning. I remember every day when my husband drove me to work in that 30 minutes on like for half a year, I've been talking to myself into this idea that I should quit my job, I should, you know, try something new. And before I brought it up to my family members that it may be something that I really want. Of course, my children would be very happy. They were so young at that time. And if I said, oh, mommy wants to draw children's, but what do you want? What, what do you think? And they said, oh, of course, it would be good. Um, but there's a lot of implications that um, I need to look after. Uh, and my husband has been very supportive. And he knew that even though by the time he met me, I already dropped my pen. But he knew that I'm creative. He knew that I'm artistic just in our, that's how you find out from our daily interaction. And my my old friends in my art class in the secondary school, they knew that even though I dropped my pen for so long, they knew there is always some fire in me, some artistic explosion that may happen in me, even though it had been, you know, laid dormant for so long. So this is how it kind of came up. And actually, before I quit from the corporate job, I asked my, you know, my boss, could I take four days of work and take one day off in a week? Just for that one day, I tried to try on something new, be a mother or do whatever things. I was very fortunate for the company, it's Walt Disney, that they grounded me that flexibility. It carried on like four or five months, and then it helps me to realize that for that one day in five days, that when I was free, when I can do anything that I want, instead of, you know, working five days straight, that one day actually can blow up into a whole week and a whole new career. And that's why for that try, it was a very good transition for me from working to doing something for my own, you know, being a mother artist, taking up art courses and at the same time, um, you know, looking after my children. So for that beautiful four or five months transition, I realized that a lot of things could be done in my week and I can really transit from the very busy corporate life into a mother artist life. But interestingly, when I finally make the hard decision to quit from the corporate world and, you know, pursue my dreams, and I proudly announce that decision to my friends, you know, some of them, and actually one of them is a CEO, they were responded, okay, how nice, Libby, congratulations. You can live like a tie-tie. 
if anyone would know about tai tai, meaning、um, you know, wealthy wives who don't need to work to earn money, and they basically, you know, they can they can enjoy the life in high tea or or hair salon. And I'm not one of tai tai, but even if I am, there's nothing wrong with that, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and we all have our right to enjoy ourselves, and we all have the self indulgent time. When we work hard at the same time, but I'm actually not a Thai Thai because people kind of take out the unemployed element of being Thai Thai and a mother artist, and they think that both are the same, and they relate these two ideas. And the one thing they were missing is there are a lot of work that go into turning myself into a mother artist. I need to work even harder. To learn that skills, and you know, not just talking about being a mother, as I was have, having a lot of you know, stay-at-home mom friends, they have such a back schedule to to handle. They have fire to fight every day. They need to drive to their kids to school. They don't have much time on their own, basically. But people in general still have the idea of that. Oh, you if you're stay-at-home mom, and you must be tie-tie, and you must have nothing else to do. Except doing your hair、uh, or your manicures, so so I think it is really something that we have to change to give the due respect to this fantastic group of people, not just moms but also stay-at-home dads as well. That they are as well as busy, and they are, you know, maybe on economic terms they are not employed, but they are actually employed by their own children, and they have bosses to serve. They need to juggle with a lot of resources issues, and really require highly capable people to make things, you know, perfect. So going back to to my friend's reaction, I think it was the time when I think, oh, this is how people term unemployment, and it was quite daunting to to hear such feedback. And、uh, but because my focus and my drive to pursue that. That childhood dream of mine of being a children's book artist is so strong that I kind of wouldn't be distracted by those comments. I kind of stay on course to what I do and then do it for seven years, and is what I've become now. I think what's really incredible too is that you said I'm going to apply myself and I'm going to go back to school. And you hear this pretty often that people say I'm going to go back to school and maybe it's a continuation of a career that they already started. But again, I think it's really brave to go back to school and open yourself back up to the concept of learning. I want to ask, what was it like to go back to school? And it's funny because we're sitting here right now at SCAD, <laughs> the Savannah College of Art and Design in Hong Kong, doing it the place where you started this new venture. This place, the SCAD campus in Hong Kong, had a very special place in my heart because I have done a lot of firsts here,、um, like taking baby steps here in, you know, picking up my watercolors again after seventy years, picking up gouache, and doing collage. But at the same time, this is the first time where I learned to to draw digitally, which is for me is a revolution. For my development, and it really have a big implication to my career as well because all the books that I've drawn are 
using computer and Photoshop. And this is exactly the new skills that I learned from, from SCAD. So when I first came back to school, and it is actually a design school that I've never been to, there's a lot of adjustment that I need to take. Just for example, when I ask, can I park my car here? Then I would say, oh, you have to ask for those permission of the supervisors. And, you know, it's a very simple conversation, but it's kind of rang the bell. You know, Libby, you are no longer a manager. You have to ask for permission to park the car. So this is like, oh, the identity crisis coming in that you are not what you were. You are a student now. And also, I always reminded myself to never expect special treatments just because of your seniority. And this is something that I have to remind myself every day. But because when, you know, when I have children and they're growing up, I see there's a big generation gap between myself and my children. And I see going back to school as a good education for me to connect with a new generation and, and it also make me, um, you know, make the transition for me as a mom to understand my children smoother. Um, so when I got into SCAD, I got into a new class of um, people who could be my own children <laughs> and also, you know, have to learn from professors who is significantly younger than me even younger than my cousins. But, but surprisingly, it only takes me one, two weeks to adjust to it because I just love the environment. It's very challenging. At the same time, it's very encouraging. And also mingling with the young people is the best anti-aging formula, I would say, because I learned to see the world from the lenses and it's very useful for me. I want to ask you about this you brought this up to me the other day that you think a lot about how do you understand people's true potential. Did you think about this a lot when you were at school? And I was wondering if you could speak to this a little bit. Because of my psychology background and also my corporate role as a organization capability professional and also learning and development professional for my corporations in the past, the question of how could we develop one's potential to the fullest, how, what is the amount of potential one has always stay in my mind. I keep asking those questions. And because in a corporate situation, there's always limits of what a company can do for their staff because what they can only develop is the job-related talents. Anyone can have so much to offer outside of their own job. They can offer, they can do better as a family member to a community member. And this is something that is not the focus for a company. Um, so that's why I think it's kind of limiting of what I can do as a talent management professional. The question going back to myself, how can I develop my own potential? How much potential do I have outside of my job? And I think this is really a good question that everyone should ask ourselves. And I think at the end of the day, and also after seven years of you know studying and scared and all you know, turning around three books that I would never dream of <laughs> 10 years ago. Yeah, it was amazing. If I knew I mean, 10 years ago, if I knew that 10 years later I had three books, I think this is not Libby Lamb, not at all. But now it's kind of I do something unexpected to surprise myself. I think the whole idea that the answer to my question is your potential is there's not fixed potential. You can always grow. And that's why I love the growth mindset theory of um, Carol Dweck so much that there's not fixed amount. 
you learn more and then you have more potential. You can do much more. And you can even do something different from what you're doing. Not just amount the, uh, you know, increasing the amount of a certain category. You can expand your search category to a totally different industry like what I did from corporate to creative. And this is really amazing. It's also happening to me as a, you know, as a person, you know, born in the 1970s. The age doesn't count as well, that you can still grow when you're getting older. Now I think I want to focus more on your creative process. I think it's special that you're both a writer and an illustrator. I don't think that happens all the time in the industry. So I want to focus on the unique challenges that you face as a writer versus the unique challenges you face as an illustrator. The unique challenges that I face as a writer is I write English books. I did not do that at the start because I thought that my books would be just for Chinese readers because Chinese is my native language and I am very confident about using Chinese as the medium to write. But because you know, after two years in studying SCAD, I turned around some sketches and I sent it to two largest uh, children's book publishers in Hong Kong, but they both rejected me. They turned me down for you know different reasons. For example, they said, you know, Hong Kong is not a children's book market. Hong Kong is a textbook market that the parents would pay a lot just to buy exercise books to, you know, raise the grades, the exam results of the children. The other comment that they said is, oh, Libby, your art is not cute enough. Um, it's too, they said, they, they used the word too British. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but, um, you know, we, we love Japanese manga styles, so why don't you copy them? So so I have these kind of comments that is saying that um, my art do not fit with the Hong Kong culture. And when I came back to Skid and talked to my professors and they say, oh, we have strong faith in your style, but the only thing you need to change is to change the language from Chinese to English so you can open up to an other big world and a whole new world that read English. Then it become my unique challenge as a as a um, you know children's book writer because I'm using my second language to write. So um, so I used to write a skeleton because I, I kind of think about the story in Chinese first and then I have to translate it mentally into English. And then I need help from editors to you know, go through the grammars and the flow. Um, so even though my stories is children's stories for you know, targeting uh, age 4 to 10, the language that I've used, I need to be really careful. I, I don't expect to have a long, you know, anything. You know, I think the maximum, the maximum length that I have is about uh, 1,500 words that I have, but still within that, that number of words, I need to be really careful with uh, the words choice that I use. So that is the unique challenge. Another challenge as a, um, you know, unique challenge for an illustrator is because I have been dropping my, my paintbrush for over 17 years, I actually have to pick that up again to harm my skill for the first thing. And the second thing is I have to paint like a child <laughs> because I have to learn to see the world from the perspective. It's not just, you know, adult, but how they see the, for example, they think that the, the tree is orange because it actually looked orange at night when the tree was shone from the street lamp. But there is a rational side of you telling you the local color of the tree is green. So, so you always have to juggle with your own perspective versus your reader's perspective. And because as I aged, I kind of 
getting away from that children's perspective. And that's why the unique challenge that I have is I have to retrain myself to look things from children's eyes. How did you teach yourself to do that? I'm very lucky because I draw my books for my children and my daily interactions with them basically train me up to see the world from their eyes and um, and also just to be more open-minded and you know attentive to what they said to me and also their friends said to me. You're very methodical. Can you tell me how you come up with the ideas for the books that you write? <laughs> yeah, you know, I start when I have the story came to mind. Usually those stories came to my mind within probably 30 minutes that I have that idea. For example, take Crispy Children as an example, my 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 third book, my latest one. Uh, I was listening to Roald Dahl by the time the idea came up. I was listening to the enormous crocodile of Roald Dahl. I was thinking the enormous crocodile want to eat children and Roald Dahl can go that far in terms of scary stories, but people still love it. And could I do the same about doing a book about hunting or eating children? That's the first question. And then the second question is, is another totally random experience that I have. About 10 years ago when I was sitting in PepsiCo's annual dinner and I see crispy children on the menu. And then I read the Chinese is actually chicken. Then I know that crispy children, the children, the word children is a typo. And it happened to most Chinese population because, oh, as long as we get the Chinese right and the English is still English, <laughs> then that's fine. So I always have that idea stuck into my mind. And I told myself, one day I'm going to blow up this idea. And that come to be a perfect totally random combination. It comes to perfect combination that I want to have a story about eating children and how about crispy children and how this misunderstanding would end up. And at the same time, the third dimension came in is the book that I have been reading is The Lucifer Effect by um, the very famous Stanford psychologist called uh, Philip Slimbardo. Uh, you know, I read most of his stuff when I was a um, psychology student. And Philip Zimbardo actually came to visit us when I was in Chinese University doing my master's degree. And I was so fascinated by his theory of why normal people turn bad. And, you know, I read all his books. So these three dimensions, the third is, you know, Rodal's inspiration is eating children, crispy children on the menu on a random annual dinner. And then the third layer is Zimbardo's, um, you know, theory of why normal people turn bad all came together and gel up as crispy children. And also based on my, you know, you know, more than 10 years experience in corporate days, I see politics taking place in the office on a daily basis. And I see when you don't speak up and you, you see something wrong happening and you don't speak up, you're already letting the evil do its job by not speaking up. So in the Crispy Children book, when, um, you know, the, the starving farmer was asked to hunt for children for a dish, and I deliberately drawn that conversation in a crowded kitchen where a lot of a lot of people working in the kitchen actually, um, you know, overheard that conversation but did not speak up. And that was the bystander effect I wanted to convey that it happened to us all the time. And if we were being ordered 
to do something that we know that is potentially unethical. I mean, not to say that the companies that I've worked for have asked me to do such things, but I see that temptation, temptations that people every day they do things just out of mercenary, um, you know, purposes like what I have been, you know, striving for in, in my old days. We do not necessarily see the the dark side of that command. So what we see is only money. What we see is what is good for me. Then that's why in the crispy children book, I deliberately drawn the villain in such a big size because I want to say that this villain is actually not starving. The basic needs is all met. So why he's still taking the command blindly is because it's greed. Basically, it's greed. So this is how I kind of gel up everything from my my copper days and put it into a simple, you know, thrilling but interesting uh, funny story in a children's book context. For listeners that have not yet had the pleasure of reading Crispy Children, (laughs) what is the crux of the ethical decision that the protagonist is faced with making? He was um, he was starving, so he doesn't have his basic needs met, um, and he got a lot of rejections, like everyone has gone through. He couldn't really find a job, so he had the hardship to to endure. At the very last, he finally got a job, so he thought that he can get out from that predicament, but then that job actually led him into another even bigger predicament is to ask him to hunt, you know, he has to hunt for the ingredients for a dish called Crispy Children. And he was the bottom of the hierarchy in that big kitchen because he got a job as a kitchen helper in a big, you know, a wealthy family and they have a big kitchen to run. And and what the kitchen needs to do is to cook whatever meals that the, the master of the house has ordered for the day. So the protagonist's job is to gather the ingredients for whatever meals, for that, whatever dish that the master of the house has ordered. And for his first day of job, he has to gather the ingredients for crispy children. And so he was, of course, very shocked. And he asked if there's a misunderstanding and immediately got told off saying that you're in the bottom of the command chain. You cannot ask. And we all have to listen to our master. So he thinks that he still have to get the job done to fill his empty stomach. So he has to, you know, basically catch the children as ingredients. So one thing I want to point out is the villain, the boss of this protagonist. Whenever he addressed children, he would say it's the ingredients. This is how he framed the words and how he tried to get himself away from committing a crime because it's actually not a crime. I'm just doing my job asking my subordinates to fetch ingredients. But the subordinates, who is the protagonist, is doing the job which is actually is a crime to, to catch children. So the crux of the protagonist is to really whether to fit his own, to meet his own needs, basic needs, or to deprive a child from the right to live. So this is, um, <laughs> I think this is what we usually have to, the kind of temptations or dilemma we have to face on a daily basis. Not that extreme, but sometimes we always enjoy taking up something that is benefit to ourselves but is at the expense of other people's well-being. There's a lot of depth. I think people often discredit children's books as not having enough depth because they're children's books. How do you think about these sorts of layers that a young child versus an older child versus maybe a parent reads your books? How do you cater to different audiences that might be reading? 
Oh, it's a great question, Juliana.、Um, I remember Miyazaki, the most respected Japanese animator in the world.、Um, he once said, "You know, he has done a lot of animations on stories that is so deep." But he he was saying that I didn't really expect my audience would un- my young audience would understand the story by the time they watch the animation. But I want to make it interesting. The visually, they're very striking, so they have that. Impression in their mind about the story. So as they grow old, they still have the idea of the story. And one day, when they grow older, that kind of clicked into what they see, and they see the bravery and the hardship that the characters have to deal with when they saw the movie like twenty or thirty years ago. So that was the idea that I had for crispy children. So if you are a、um, you know for five year old boy or a five year old girl, they would say, "Oh, such a funny story!" They go through the thrilling journey, but at the end, they find out it's a misunderstanding, and they see how kindness pay off, which is very basic, like the the outlayer of an onion. But when they go deeper, when you got like、um, you know twelve year old readers, they start to know oh, they should have asked this and that. They shouldn't have listened to the hierarchy. But then for you know adults like my friends, they would immediately know that why didn't they ask? They actually do something extra. That the boss didn't have asked for, but still they do it because they want to please the superior, and and that's something extra. It means killing children. So, so I think a lot of adults actually told me they love crispy children so much because it's talking to them, and I see that they actually going into the core of that. Of the onion, so it's okay for the children to just see the exterior at the moment, and because the crispy children, they think it's very funny, so they will remember the storyline at least. But when they get older, they will find out. I have to ask this: Did Disney movies also influence you? I think one of the biggest praises for Disney is that kids love them, but adults love them too. I, I think this approach really resonates. Yeah,、um, I was when. In my three years with Walt Disney, I was responsible of launching Disney University in across Asia Pacific, and I'm also the trainer to train brand stewardship. So I need to talk about you know、uh, the brand and how Walt Disney had conceived Mickey Mouse and how it blown up into a Fortune 500 company that you know selling dreams to every corner of the world. So I was really amazed by how gigantic impact. That a simple idea like Mickey Mouse has made, and and how much faith he has in building this as a as a、um, empire, and also one thing about the the Snow White animation. By the time that he started off that project, nobody would believe in a ninety-minute animation would take anywhere. But he had that faith, and also it was started off as a black and white production. At the very end of that black and white production, all of a sudden you have the color. Technology came in, so Walt Disney had to make a very hard decision of dropping off what he had, the team has done for the black and white, and then redo, redo the whole thing in in colors. And you can see how much money has been, you know, going for that decision. But this is the hardest decision, but it's the right decision because of 
the color animation, it opened up so much doors and Snow White is such a big hit that changed the animation industry. So all of that magic, so-called magics that Walt Disney have done and all his brother, uh, Rod Disney, has supported him, had made dream come true and make us believe that everything is possible. So this is what I've been inspired. But in terms of movie, one of the movie that I watched when I already a grown-up is The Kid by Bruce Willis. It's a Disney movie. And it was, I find it really fascinating because it was telling me that even though I became an adult, I can still look for my dream. And it was very inspiring. And that's what I did. So Crispy Children has been your most recent book. Do you have any others in the works? Sure. Um, actually, I've been busy working on my fourth one. It is about um, gratitude, and I will be collaborating with a, another international charity to, you know, to dedicate the book to them and hopefully raise monies for them as well. And it's going to be exciting. And is there anything else besides the fourth book that you're working on? So other than the fourth book that I'm working on, I actually have kicked off part of my fifth book, which is about interviewing extraordinary women in Hong Kong. And that batch of extraordinary women we target to to have them in different industries. And those are the industries that that women aspire to get into but have no role good role models to to look up to. And, um, you know, as I see a lot of research in the in UK and US, you know, nowadays, young girls have so few role models to look up to. Most of them actually look up to their moms or the celebrities. And this is what they have. But if, say, for example, if I'm a girl, I, I aspire to be a comic artist, you know, I cannot take Stanley as <laughs> as a role model. Um, so who else can I can I go to, or maybe a film director? Grow up in Hong Kong. Who else can I go to? So in the, this is the fifth project that I'm working on. I'm very happy that I have a partner to work that on with me. Um, so it's going to be exciting. Is to provide a wide range of role models for children in Hong Kong, especially girls in Hong Kong, from different industries. So uh, we hopefully develop into something interesting. And especially in Hong Kong where, say for example, you have got a child who do well academically, they already program them to be either a doctor or lawyer or eye banker. But as you see the World Economic Forum, the new reports, you know, the world has been changing. The new jobs are coming up. We cannot just focus ourselves in those old kind of paradigm of what jobs are like and what smart people should go into. So I think the role modeling for women is very important and is something that I'm, I'm working on. I'm excited and thanks for teasing the projects. You have two lovely daughters, and some of your themes touch upon women's empowerment. What does this mean to you, and why do you think women's empowerment is so important? Um, I think, um, you know, women empowerment is such a big topic nowadays, but at the same time, it's being challenged at every front. I think, first of all, women have to ask ourselves one question. Have we already tried what we have done to, you know, turn the table around? to capture all the advantages that we have and also turn disadvantage into advantage. So I think we need to really approach the topic with with kindness and wisdom instead of just hatred. And also we have to turn the focus of control to be internal, what you have done, instead of what 
you've been imposed to do. Because a lot of the restrictions could be self-imposed. The challenges actually by, you know, you can solve the challenges by just speaking up or asking a, a simple questions and simply say no. So have you done that? I think we, we need to ask ourselves. So this is how I wish to begin with uh, Girls' Empowerment. And for the two books that I've written, Checklist of Beauty and My Best Friend Sunny, these two books actually address the core issue of Women Empowerment 101 is how you develop your confidence and how you should look into your own talents. For Checklist of Beauty in particular, I think nowadays... Women empowerment actually being challenged by a lot of uh, efficacy about beauty and looks. You know, we have a certain, you know, standard of beauty to to go after as communicated by the mass media, the magazines, in terms of the shape of your face, the shape of your body. And these are actually self-imposed restrictions. We, you know, we women always have to you know, starve ourselves to get slim body and you know, have to put on makeup. But at the same time, we're not happy about what we are, we, what we're not. So I think when the society was telling you that looks and beauty are everything, and at the same time, they teach you not to like yourself how you look. And this is actually taken away women empowerment because we're not happy about ourselves in the first place. So that's why I see women empowerment. When we're talking about this, we have to ask, are you, basic question is, are you comfortable about yourself? Are you feeling good about yourself, confidence, and you're looking into your inner beauty and the strengths that you have, the talents that you have, instead of just how you look? I know this might seem like an obvious question, but Why is it so important to give these messages to young children, the audience of children's books? Why is it so important for them to read something like Checklisted Beauty? You know, there are a lot of children's books that address inner beauty. So, for example, a classic one is Beauty and the Beast. But I, as a children's book artist, I actually task myself to fill the white space in children's literature on things that haven't been touched on. So even though the idea of inner beauty has been touched on by fairy tales and all, and all the classics, I think that hitting inner beauty, seeing inner beauty in a contemporary setting um, is something lacking in the children's book um, literature. And that's why I want to fill up that gap. So in Checklist to Beauty, I put it in a modern days context. I have you know children walking in front of a flagship store opening our flagship, you know, Porsche brand stores and see how people are worshipping a same set of facial features when they're trying to all share the same set of nose and eyes and, you know, and, and lips and, you know, and forget about uniqueness and how, you know, the story talking about how they got into a fight when they, when everybody looks the same, <laughs> named the same. And so while we are talking to, about beautiful we actually actually use it as an expense of uniqueness. We forget about the special thing about ourselves, just go for the standards. And so, and this is why I think it's important for children to start knowing about how unique they are. A key part of children education is building your own strength and everyone got a different strength. And I also, as I see some, when I read some of the research done in UK and US, I was very shocked to see that as young as six-year-old girl, they started to think themselves being fat. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, you know, and when it goes into teenagers, lots of the girls said that they're not happy about how they look. Um, they worry about how the selfie looks in the Instagram. 
So you see, those worries is not just for you know twenty something; it's getting into younger and younger age, and that's the reason to cause depression. How unfair for for women, beautiful ladies, young ladies, to bear such stress at the age when they should have done something to build up their own talents. So, so I think the world will be a better place if we tap into that women resources and let them blossom. Do your girls enjoy reading your books? Yes, <laughs> yes,、um, yes. They they do. They enjoy reading my books because they see themselves in the books. Have they been inspired by any parts of your books, even just a little detail? They wouldn't tell me directly. I didn't see really an immediate cause and effect kind of reaction for them. But I see them. They they started to know I want to change the world. I want to help the world. This is what my best friend Sunny is about, and also why they developing their own uniqueness. I'm different from who is who, and it's okay that I am good at that, and I'm not good at on the other hand. And they're proud of who they are and how they look. So you and I actually met at a event in Hong Kong called Creative Mornings, where you spoke about this word restart, and you centered your talk on this very simple yet profound illustration, where you drew a seesaw and hindrances on one side and enablers on the other. Now that we've talked about a lot of your experience, I was hoping that you could place some of those experiences as either hindrances or enablers, and why the balance between the two is so important. As I share with you, Juliana, the very first out of a podcast that I grew up in a very poor family, so financial has been my hindrance in my first thirty years of my life. But then,、um, because I worked hard and you know I, I work hard in my studies and in my career, I took、uh, opportunities. I got the guts to do things that I. Is outside of my、uh, comfort zone, so financial. When by the age of like thirty, financial is no longer my hindrance; it became my enabler. Then that's why I gift myself a break when I find out that I have a new passion to pursue. So this is the biggest example that I have of how I turn around hindrance into enabler. And so by the time I make the decision to become a children's book artist, I'm financially secure to take that break. But at the same time, I have new hindrances coming in. It's because of my growing ego. Yeah, as I told you about, I used to see myself as an executive. I I have decisions to say no to people, but now I'm being seen as an unemployed Tai Tai, <laughs> and also I am seen as someone you know as a student. I have to learn from scratch, and I got rejected by the publishers because they are the one who make the decision, not me anymore. So I'm you know it's like a comma that I used to reject people. Now people reject me. It It was actually very hard in the first few days, but then at the end of the day, I think, oh, it's it's just a way of life, and I could never be sitting on this at the same side of the table. It's always turning. One good thing about me is I actually re- responded positively to criticism. This is something that I learned from my corporate job. So so once get through that hard days. First few days, I became stronger. I, out of just because I think I have faith in myself, I I know the roadmap to to overcome. I have my tribe of support from Scat, from my family, from my friends. So so that's why I recovered pretty quickly. And that was the time when I when I started to learn digital art because I think commercial art is what they're looking for. They they call my art is too British because I was doing traditional art. So so that is something that I I have. 
you know, react to criticism. And and this is how I see hindrance. Sometimes it's self, most of the time it's self imposed for my ego. Um, so at the end of the day, just don't take myself so seriously. And you know, put away your my crown as a queen that everybody is equal and you can be a student again. Would that be the advice that you would give someone that's contemplating a dramatic career change similar to yours? Yeah, I think not to take ourselves too seriously is one thing. And on the other hand, also, you know, if you want to make a change and you need to look for options to make that change happen, never look for a second best option. Only look for the best. But the best is the most attractive, but at the same time, that requires the highest commitment, that you need to change your lifestyle at the maximum. And that's why people don't like it, because it makes it may not be the most expensive. It's just that you have to change your lifestyle. And people may not be so eager to make that change. They want that change to happen, but they don't want to actually change themselves in the first place. So I think also you need to look for the best and, and don't waste your time on just doing the second best and actually getting you nowhere. I think this has been so inspiring and I just want to thank you for your time. Thanks, Juliana. Thanks for tuning in today. Ta for Ta is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks to Kaiser Quo, editor and co-producer, and Jason McRonald for editing. Also make sure to check out the other great podcasts featured on the Seneca Network. I always do love hearing from listeners, so questions, comments, general musings, whatever, could be sent to ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta. 